Hey, this is Wit, and we've got just a few more episodes in Season 3 of the Improv Comedy Connection podcast. Today I've got Jonathan Pitts as my guest, and we'll start just dipping into our conversation about the transition to virtual improv and tech and all that sort of thing. Jonathan is an improviser out of Chicago who has a deep and long history in improv, and we get into some of that, including an interesting discussion about a couple of interactions with Keith Johnstone and Del Close in the Second City. For those of you that know Jonathan's work, it may seem crazy that we really don't get super deep into this Chicago Improv Festival, which Jonathan was the executive director and co-founder of for the College Improv Tournament or other things that he does, but there was just so much that we did talk about that makes this a really rich conversation. I know you'll enjoy it, so let's start backstage with the Jonathan Pitts episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. Where are you now? Are you in a school? I'm in the Athenaeum Theater Building, which is where we have our office. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's the office inside the Athenaeum Theater Building. Uh, The Athenaeum Theater has a thousand-seat theater and then three studio theaters. Okay. And uh, the Athenaeum Main Stage Theater has been around for over 100 years. And then I've had an office in here for like 17 years. Okay. Okay. And I will say, if you're ready for a little something freaky... Yeah. Doesn't that look a lot like The Shining? It does a little bit. <laughs> There's more posters. <laughs> yes, The Shining didn't have a lot of posters. Not, not nearly enough, but who knows what right. it looks like today. <laughs> right. So, uh, I mean, I can move around like this with, with this microphone, but when I'm doing a show, I like having the freedom of not having the headphones on and not right. having a microphone that makes me have to have the lights on. Uh, so right. instead, I have that other one, which is meant for like meetings, but it sticks to uh, the laptop so I can do it with one hand. So if I want to gesture, I can, and I have more freedom to do that. Right. So I've now got one laptop, one uh, light, and two sets of headphones for different purposes and two sets of mics for different purposes. So I feel pretty caught up on the tech side of of, uh, online stuff. Well, we have- Add on. Uh, I still got to add on the 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 things that people use to because there's different uh, things that you add on so you can have uh, like clownfish and snap cameras to where you can then put on different hats and and uh, all that face- stuff. Right. Yeah. 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 I haven't decided to do that. We uh, also haven't used backgrounds for our group. We decided not to do that. Yeah, um, I, I feel like the backgrounds uh, are. Fun, but I also feel like they're limiting in some ways. They're limiting because you got to stay a certain distance, and yeah. I, I feel like th- there's always a goal. I think even on online improv, Is, should we be ha- recording this? Well, uh, I am. I just so okay, I didn't good. forget. I was like, oh, this is like a, oh, this is a lovely conversation. We should have this be part of what. We're yeah, may, maybe we'll start here. I don't know, but yeah. So, <laughs> so I'll introduce you in the run up, anyways, so people know who who is who. But uh, um, I feel like in online improv, there's still uh, or should be a goal of suspension of disbelief when you're doing scene work. And any time that background either crops your head weird or part of your body disappears or whatever, it's just you're out. You're out instantly from that, at least right. for me. Yeah, yeah. 
what I have found that I like, I do like there's uh, the two the two groups of people that I think are doing really cool things with online improv. Uh, one is the Adam and Eves, which is an all female mm-hmm. improv group yep. out of Bangalore, India, and I've worked with them as a teacher and a coach. But I love what they do online uh, because they really use the camera in lots of different ways and they really Mm -hmm. use their body in lots of different ways and they do things that are abstractions as well as very specific things and they have multiple cameras ongoing that count uh, that are commenting on something in a good mm-hmm. way not commenting on it like something that delineates and makes the thing smaller but expands off of it yeah. which makes yeah and then also i really love what my friends in manila philippines uh, at third world improv are doing because uh while they do use some of the background stuff they are really adept with all the facial stuff and the the cool thing about the facial stuff that changes like a hat or a face or a yeah. woman can have a beard is that the way it's set up they can move around and it moves with them right and so it doesn't break that illusion that some backdrops do when you see them move and all of a sudden there's this jagged space there yeah 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 well I haven't seen what they I I know about the Adam and Eve's and uh, they have been uh, they've been all over the place, it seems like. Yeah, they have. Online, yeah. Be, there's certain people that I feel like are uh, becoming online stars during COVID. And I feel like uh, the Adam and Eves are one of them. Uh, I feel like Jay Suko is another person who's really uh, uh, come to the forefront during this time period. Well, and some of it is um, is that these are people who stepped out. But it it's an interesting dynamic to see how the improv world has I don't, I don't know what the percentage are i don't know if you have a sense of this jonathan what the percentage of people on the sidelines are versus those who are like full bore um in terms of the online improv world and community and things like that i mean jay has been doing two it seems like two or three 10 minute scenes which turn into half hour 45 minute conversations every day uh, at least every weekday since like March, <laughs> that's a that's a lot. That's a lot of scenes. Indeed, it is. Yeah. yeah. So when did when did you start um, getting online? And then we'll we'll uh, we'll backtrack a little bit with you okay. at improv. But in terms of on the online stuff, were you were you jumping on right away, or how did you kind of come into it? Um, I. There's a, there's like an origin story leading up to how I came on. And so there's okay. like a prologue to the origin story. And then, so they all lead together. It just takes, uh, uh, I'm just letting you know, so you know, I didn't start off in the spot and make you go, <laughs> where the fuck is this guy going? Why is he not answering my question? Well, um, you just run. I'm going to go get a drink and then I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from October of 2017 until uh, February of 2020, I was on what I call my global improv walkabout. Yeah. And yeah. in that time period, I uh, taught and performed in 24 different countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that wasn't in Zoom. That was in real life in 3D, right. 24 countries and 60 cities. So uh, in my global improv walkabout, I was seeing all these things and meeting people in real life and working with people, uh, teaching and performing with them in Europe and Asia and mm-hmm. Oceania. Mm-hmm. And, and making new friends there. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I was still doing stuff in America, but most of my stuff was in the rest of the world. I would say yeah. eight months of the year, I was not in Chicago. I was in other parts, in other countries. Okay. And then 
uh, when COVID hit and everything shut down, international travel for us Americans became just about impossible. Right. And uh, at the same time, I had been given a diagnosis by my doctor that I was a diabetic. Okay. And being both 60 years old and being told that I was diabetic was really scary because I felt like I was such a high risk at the time because we, you know, back then it was, it was like anybody over 60 as opposed to now like 65 up. Yeah. And, uh, I was also at that point considered obese in terms of my weight. And so I was scared and I really didn't do anything creative for months because mm -hmm. the next three and a half months, I radically changed my diet with the help of a nutritionist. And I, uh, uh, at the end of three and a half months, they tested me again and they moved my diagnosis from diabetic to pre-diabetic. Okay. And I kept going with that. And then four months later, they tested me again. And they said I was no longer pre-diabetic, just normal. And okay. in that time period, I also lost 30 pounds. So my body mass index became 26. And I was no longer considered obese. And I no longer am diabetic. So I was really not doing anything online because all my creativity was going into finding out how to eat and feed myself and how to cook more than just yeah. making tuna fish sandwiches, but how to right. really cook. Uh, especially with this new diet that was much more like a Mediterranean diet. And and so all of my energy went into that. And then the few times I'd see Zoom, it didn't look compelling yet. It looked like people were having fun, but I didn't know how much of it translated. And uh, I didn't pay much attention to it. Then mm -hmm. once I no longer felt that my life was at stake because of the changes that I was able to make, then I was able to start sort of like, come out of the hole and start looking around and see what was going on. Conversely, mm -hmm. in that amount of time, when I was like out of the scene, mm -hmm. that's when people were making some of the discoveries that they were making with the work. And that's mm -hmm. where some of that really started rolling. And, and, uh, and then I was able to come in and see what people were doing. I go, oh, I like that. Uh, I still don't like that. I'd like to do this. I'd like to bring this together, go more with that. And uh, that's, so I would say, you know, after I found out that I was pre-diabetic and no longer diabetic, uh, and they took, you know, and I no longer needed the even the pills for it, that's when I started watching and starting paying attention. But mm -hmm. it wasn't until uh, the Adam and Eve's asked me to do a show with them, because uh, I performed with them in real life twice. Oh, okay. In Bangalore, uh, and then they asked me to do a guest set with them, and that's when I first started doing Zoom, and I would say that was probably about. Three months ago, maybe. Okay, so yeah. in uh, in July, August. Yeah, July, August. It was summertime, and that's when I uh, started up with that. And uh, and at the time, I was doing it on a, a Chromebook, which didn't work, you know, because yeah. Chromebook doesn't have enough power to do it. And then, so I was doing it on my iPhone. And though, so eventually, I bought this laptop that I have. And my show with the Adam and Eve's was the first time I used this laptop. And so I've been then finding out about the tools of online stuff. To look at like what is, you know, some of the appropriate. I mean, I bought a laptop because it had a high definition camera, mm -hmm. and had good sound. And then finding about different microphones and lighting to use because, you know, it's pretty clear. You know, just today, the Edinburgh Fringe announced that they are not going to be in full, return in full until 2022. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're going to have a lot of live theater here in the United States until a year from now. I think yeah. it's going to be next fall before theater can really start happening again. So this is going to be a while doing right. this sort of stuff. And right. uh, a friend of mine, our Kevin Doyle, who is a really great improviser out of Honolulu, 
he had said uh, something that I thought was brilliant, and I love giving him credit for it, is that he said he felt like this was, that we look back on this time period of Zoom 10 years from now, the way people look at silent movies. You know, what we're witnessing is the birth of a new medium. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and I think in a lot of ways, it's beginning to replace podcasting. Yeah, well, and here we sit. And here we sit, <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, so it's the birth of a new medium. And also, as Joe Bill said, and I love what he said when he said that now everybody lives in the same Zoom city. Right. And so, yeah. you know, there are certain advantages to Zoom that I looked at seeing that I'm uh, excited by. Like, I love that so many people from around the world are having the opportunity to meet and play with each other. Because prior to this, you either had to be at a certain level of accomplishment mm-hmm. to be able to be accepted at international improv festivals for them to want you, or you had to live near it and be willing to go there and be a participant, but not a teacher. Right. And you know, uh, maybe you'd be in a show, maybe you wouldn't. But you know, most people either had to live nearby an international one, or uh, they had to get to a certain level of visibility and uh, uh, quality that people would say, yes, come do it. Meanwhile, on Zoom, like if you look at, you know, Jay, he will play with anyone. Right. I mean, you know, he's very Martin DeMott and Viola Spolin in that way of he will embrace and play with anybody regardless of their experience or quality levels. Mm-hmm. You know, and there is that thing that is wonderful because I love international improv and I, and that, I mean, uh, one of the things I was proud of is running the Chicago Improv Festival over 20 years was every year of those 20 years, I, there was always at least one ensemble from another country. It was always mm-hmm. something I was proud of and aimed for that we were an international arts festival. Mm-hmm. And in the 20 years, we had a total of 27 different countries perform in Chicago at the Chicago Improv Festival. And that's harder to do than in Europe or Asia because Just you got to travel to get to the Just U.S. So we right. only have you know Canada and and uh, Mexico is our neighbors. Everyone else, you got to travel far. So to have 27 uh, countries in 20 years is something that I was really proud of. I love international work. And that's why when I was done producing the Chicago Improv Festival, I went on my global improv walkabout so that I could uh, explore and meet and share with improvisers and improv artists from around the world. And uh, it was one of the most joyful periods of my life. Uh, so I'm glad that other people are getting to partake of that same banquet, that same mm-hmm. meal, and having those experiences with each other. Because going back to CIF, we used to have a thing called One World on One Stage, where everybody of, that was international mm-hmm. that was performing together, would. we had a special night where they would get together, they'd rehearse during the day, everyone would show a game or scene or style from the, how they do it in their world and in their country. And then everyone would show that, and then we would also have them play together. And then sometimes they'd be speaking gibberish, sometimes they'd be speaking their own language, multiple language. It was like the Tower of Babel, and people yeah. would just get so excited by it. And uh, uh, you know, even the bitter, jaded Chicago improvisers were like, <laughs> "This is amazing, so much fun!" And it was great to see all of that because I believe that to play is a universal right to being human, mm-hmm. and to play and to play together cuts across languages mm-hmm. and, you know, in some ways cuts across culture. So I'm glad that everyone is getting to be able to do that and experience that. Uh, so I, I love seeing that that was happening. I was also interested in what, what more can be done with it. Mm-hmm. How else can this 
grow as a medium? What can we do with it as a medium that keeps the theatrical qualities of it while simultaneously bringing in both the limitations and inventations of what uh, uh, Zoom is? Because it for, for every limit it has, it also has an invitation, depending upon how you look at it. What would you say are the biggest the biggest things that you feel that can be brought to an online improv? Recognizing that you are not doing your normal show. If you attempt to do your normal show that you would do in your theater or club, often those look not very good. Like the, the lack of visual... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there's a friend of mine, Marcus Sams, who's created something mm-hmm. in San Francisco who's really focused on having uh, like three elements of it, like the improv element of it, the film element of it, and the production effects. Because, you know, as much as we love watching each other in person with nothing else happening around us or by us, because this is a visual medium, we lose all three-dimensional space. So two or three people standing around talking in, in a theater or a club is workable because we can see their bodies but two or three people standing around talking on zoom starts becoming boring at about minute 18 because nothing is changing Mm -hmm. and it's a visual medium and and so you have to recognize that it's a visual medium and play to it it's also a two-dimensional medium which is different than a three-dimensional medium and we don't have the best lighting and we don't have the best cameras. Even with having a high definition camera and having some other stuff, we still don't have the quality that film or television does. Right. So playing with the fact that you have more of a generic look to the camera, playing with the fact that you are in a two-dimensional world, and with that, that's what you have to use to work to begin. Uh, the you know, And also playing together there's uh, on zoom there's a two or three second lag between what's being said and when it gets changed and if two people or three people speak at the same time zoom chooses one and cuts out the other two Mm -hmm. so you have to find a way to work with those limitations and turn them into pluses and that to me is part of what's interesting about it and recognizing that as i already said before that you are in a visual medium You can bring theater to the visual medium because of the quality of the work or you can bring entertainment to it, but you're in a visual medium. Unless you do what American uh, improv theater does and they just do it as a radio play. And and you're just looking at an image that's stationary the entire time and everything is all about the voices. And that is their own answer to Zoom. When... um... I've got I've got two places to to go with what what you've just shared, Jonathan. On the one hand, when um, and I'll let you choose. This is the choose your own adventure from <laughs> way back in the day. So the two thoughts that occurred to me, and I'm not sure which to to go with, is when you think about the international walkabout, you were doing a, a three dimensional full sensory experience in all of these different countries and all of these different cities. And you also weren't just hanging out for an hour, hour and a half. You were there for a day, two, three, a week, whatever it was. Right, right. And you're not doing that online. 
So the difference between those two experiences is something to potentially poke at. The other thought that occurred to me, this is option two for you, is uh, you mentioned like the silent movie uh, comment that, you know, we'll look back at it and look at what we're doing now in uh, in that sort of um, kind of retrospective. Not that you were right at the very beginning of improvisational theater, but you were at a point where um, it, a, a lot of things that we view as, um, you know, common, uh, normal improv um, experiences were not there. Yes. You know, Improv Olympic was David Shepard's version of mm-hmm. bringing in, you know, all these different uh, types of people, uh, not the professional actor. Um, to be a part of it and a very different kind of thing. I, I've heard you talk about the kind of at Second City, you would get a scenario and maybe a couple beats and then you'd work it out and come back and you would do it. You know, a few different ways that you saw improv develop from whenever you started getting involved to what you look at today. And I don't know if there's things that you can look back and say, well, here's how we progressed to get to where we're at now, and maybe are there any lessons with that? So, which <laughs> which uh, do you want to go br- with? I'll briefly embrace the second, but I think I'd prefer to go with the first. Okay. Partially because uh, even though I was around at an earlier point of it, improv had been around a long time before I ever got involved with it. Yes. I started in 1980, and you know, uh, Viola Spolin was doing her work in the 30s and 40s, maybe even in the 20s. Right. And, you know, Paul Sills and David Shepard with The Compass did what they did in 55 and Second City opened in 59. So there was a lo- longer history of the work before I got involved in it. That said, when I got involved in it in 1979, December 17th, 1979, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, that there was no Second City training center. There was one teacher at Second City, and then that's the person who taught the workshops, and they were twice a week for like 13 weeks. And there was no multiple stuff at that. There was no second Second City stage. There mm-hmm. was just the main stage. There was one, maybe two, but one for sure, Turn Company. I don't know if they had a second. I don't remember anymore. Uh, I mm-hmm. think they had two. Uh, and IO didn't exist. Comedy Sports didn't exist. Annoyance Theater didn't exist. UCB didn't exist. The Groundlings was going on, but I think they mm-hmm. started by the time I, yeah, they were going on by the time I started, but that was like, and then in New York, there was Chicago City Limits. Mm-hmm. So like the big deal was in New York with Chicago City Limits, the Groundlings in LA and Second City in uh, Chicago and then Dudley Riggs Brave New Workshop in Minneapolis and they did sketch and then that was sort of it. Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of it for all of America, you know, and uh, when we were performing, doing shows, you do a show once a month, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, there, and you would do it like as part of an open mic night or uh, at a coffee house. Uh, and that was it because there was no other spaces and no other stages back in 1980. Uh, and there were the people that taught what they taught, that, but they were the pioneers. Mm-hmm. They were the people who were involved since the very beginning and they were the ones that were around or traveled. So uh, that's what it was like when it was back then. And it sounds like the pre, like I'm talking about the Neolithic era or Cro-Magnon era, but that's what it was like then. And the reason why it's hard to talk about where it is, where it went from there to now is because 
I feel like in a lot of ways, because of Zoom, this art form is still growing and still finding new forms of expression. It might find new forms of expression within Zoom. And I think that Zoom will become its own sort of performance medium because as dancers and musicians and singers and other people get involved with Zoom, or even, you know, eventually you'll see somebody who made a film for Zoom or on Zoom. Like I'm starting to already see filmmakers making experiments for right. sort of Zoom stuff. So I feel like Zoom is going to become its own medium, though I do believe live performance will also always be its own medium. And, mm -hmm. you know, eventually we'll be able to choose between do you want to see a live show or do you want to see a Zoom show? So I feel like it's hard to sort of say this is where improv has been and where it's going because it's still going and finding new things. It's like trying to comment on the end of the scene while you're in the scene mm -hmm. versus the scene is over, or you thought about it, and then you can comment on it. Yeah. So go back to your first one. What was your first one again? <laughs> the first one was the three-dimensional full sensory aspect of the international walkabout versus the international log on about. <laughs> yeah, I would say a huge part of that difference is when I am in other people's countries, it is my job to find out what their boundaries are because undeclared boundaries are cultural assumptions. And each country or even each city may have different cultural assumptions that will then be affecting the work of the improvisation. And so finding out how people either have their boundaries or what they do with those, like what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, uh, uh, you know, some of what they look for, or what they don't look for, they can be very different in different cities and different countries. Mm -hmm. And so if I, even though I'm teaching, I'm still there as a guest. So it's my job to learn from them culturally and be open to their cultural, uh, uh, cultural mores, uh, to use that word from philosophy in college, the cultural mores, and be able to learn from it because then I can become a better teacher with them or I can become a better improviser performing with them. And that is something that you can gain three-dimensionally because when you're in that city, surrounded by that city, surrounded by the artist. When I would travel around from city to city, I always said I only felt like a foreigner the first day I was there. Okay. Because the first day I was there, I'd never been there before. And then I would meet the improvisers, and suddenly it was like I had cousins I didn't know I had. Yeah. yeah. And then they would show me their city rather than just the touristy part. They would right. show me the stuff that was interesting, cool. If I want to go see some of the touristy stuff, they would let me. But, yeah. you know, they would show me how they lived. And then, and so it felt like visiting cousins around the world. You know, just like, oh, oh, you guys put the salt here as opposed to putting the salt here. Why is that? And then finding out about them. And that's something that you can do on a three-dimensional level, especially when you're surrounded by, when I was surrounded by that city, that country, those people. And recognizing that I could sort of put on a scale of understanding, a radar of awareness, if the, recognizing that all of us improvisers have certain things in common. So that sort of became the, the bar or the template. What, what do you think those things, I'm not sorry to interrupt, but no, what, do you think those, what do you think those things are that we have in common? Again, the desire to play, you know, the, uh, the desire to create to see and be seen, hear and be heard, and be able to 
discover moments together, whether or not they're comedic or theatrical or story. You know, there's still that desire to do that together in a collaborative way. And, you know, there is something about being brave artistically that you want to go into the unknown and see what you find. Mm -hmm. And that it's not about you, it's about everyone together. Mm -hmm. You know, so I feel like that's pretty common to all improvisers is that desire to play and connect and create. And so from that, you know, because I would get one impression of some cities or countries and then I'd meet the improvisers and I go, oh, here, these are the pipe people I should be hanging out with. <laughs> and then I'd see the, you know, and then I'd get, start getting a better understanding of what I was seeing before. Like, think about this. Like, if you hung out with a bunch of accountants, you would have a different impression of humans than if you were hanging out with improvisers. And so I don't know if that same level of uh, exploration or understanding is happening on Zoom. It could be. I don't know. Obviously, I don't know what's going on in all the rehearsals ahead of time or all the talk-throughs ahead of time. It could right. very well be that everybody is giving each other a cheat sheet or uh, uh, what's going on. Like last night, I was doing a show with people from U.S. and the U.K., and uh, uh, and we were part of a four-group show that was from all over the world. Uh, we were doing our show, and one of the characters talked about the stabilizers for their bike. Like, they were like, as soon as we take the stabilizers off, they were talking about stabilizers. And somebody in the chat line wrote, what are stabilizers? And then somebody else would say, and then somebody else said they're attached to the bike so you don't fall over. And I just went, oh, training wheels. Yeah, yeah. So it's just even that simple thing of like what we call training wheels, someone else calls stabilizers. Right, right. You know, and then when you go past that, in different countries and different cities, how much eye contact you make is culturally based. How physically you get close to somebody or not is culturally based. Whatever physical contact you have with them or not is culturally based. The speed at which you speak, how yes. much time before you interrupt or do you talk over each other or not? Absolutely. Yes, it's culturally based. Some it's really rude to interrupt. Others it's expected. You know, even sort of physical gestures. Like the first time I was in India and I asked for like, could I get a Coke? And they went, I was like, no, okay. Uh, well, what can I get? I didn't know at that time that this means oh, yes. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and then when I went to Nepal, it was more. They do it more subtly. They're like, and so you know, just like us, we nod our heads like this, but other parts of the world don't. So recognizing that uh, humanity is the same, the expressions of that humanity are culturally based. Mm -hmm. What did you most learn? about yourself personally and also about yourself as an improviser on the walkabout? What I learned most of all is that I feel at home in the world, which is a pretty nice feeling. Wherever you are or being away from home? Uh, being away from <laughs> the home, being away from the United States, I found that pretty well, pretty much everywhere else where I was, I felt at home to some degree. And that was pretty nice as opposed to feeling that other places were inherently scary or dangerous or, hmm. you know, and, and I totally understand. You could sit there and say, well, look, dude, you're an older white cisgendered male. Of course you get to feel that way. And there's probably a lot of truth to that, that, you know, uh, I have certain doors open up or certain things that make it easier for me because of my skin, age, gender presentation. But it is pretty nice to be able to go around the world and see where there's connections. There's like the famous phrase, I have multitudes. 
And meeting and working with people around the world is a chance to get to know some of those multitudes mm -hmm. and see what there is you know, in common rather than what's different. So that's, I think, the biggest thing that I learned is, is that uh, how much I really love connecting and mm -hmm. creating. Uh, and the biggest thing that I learned about myself improvisationally is that my natural or my preferred skills and styles are more at home in the rest of the world than they are in some ways in the United States. And how so? Uh, like, for example, a lot of Europe, not UK as much, but the rest of Europe, is very interested and in seeking improv as a theatrical experience. Mm -hmm. They want theatrical productions. They want theatrical uh, considerations and conceits. They want it to feel like theater. Mm -hmm. And uh, whereas in a, a lot of America, it's just meant to be entertainment, mm -hmm. kind of disposable. And comedic. More yes, often. very much comedic. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and whereas comedy can be part of theater in Europe, but they want it to be just part of it, not the only thing there is to it. Right. Um, in Asia, the groups that were homegrown, like in Singapore and Manila and uh, South Korea, the groups that were homegrown very much are drawn towards feelings and emotions. The expat groups tended to be fast and funny and, and had a birthing out of America somehow. So they would either do short forms or if they did long form, it was like a montage just aiming for fast and funny. But right. in Asia, it was very much concerning about the feelings and emotions. If you did a show in front of an audience in Singapore and just made them laugh, they'd like it, but they wouldn't be thrilled by it. But if you could make them laugh and make them cry or make them gasp, then they felt like they got the full emotional range of, of a show. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then in uh, Oceania, like New Zealand and Australia, they're drawn towards narrative and story and genre. And uh, that's what, you know, now there are some places like you can see a lot of genre work in San Francisco and you can see a lot of genre work in Austin. And Austin is one of the places that has a lot of, a lot of range of stuff, uh, San Francisco, Seattle, uh, parts of Atlanta and, and Minneapolis have that. But a lot of the rest of America is drawn by the big three, New York, Chicago, LA, which is very comedy focused and very fast and funny. Well, the dispersal of it was, in the U.S. anyways, was Whose Line Is It Anyway? And then the pipeline to Saturday Night Live, which, just based on the medium that was in, needed to be kind of fast and funny, too. Absolutely. Yep. So, putting aside perhaps the, the notion that, uh, when you said, like, the homegrown groups that brought their their own sensibilities into it as opposed to uh, starting with an imported version with imports uh, putting it together. Right. Um, how much of where you end up depends on where you start? And, you know, one of the things I like about some of the work being done in other countries is they incorporate more of their culture into the work that they do when improvising. Yeah. And, you know, like uh, there's a great group in Mexico uh, Impro Top that just does amazing stories and fairy tales and they incorporate magical realism as mm -hmm. does some of the groups in South America. Uh, so, and, and, and some of my favorite groups 
uh, in the UK, like in Ireland, they incorporate elements of story and poetry because that's part of their cultural background. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also, so I like the groups that pull from their own culture and have found a way to improvise on their own terms without having to have sort of like an artistic colonization come mm-hmm. over and say, oh, you improv savages, sit down <laughs> and worship at our church. And if you're not doing it this way, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Versus they're finding their own way and their own expression, mm-hmm. which makes it to me interesting. Because to me, what makes something an art form is the wide variety of expressions of it. Mm-hmm. Versus if it's only done one way, that starts becoming almost fascist. Yeah, I, under, I understand what you're saying about that. But in terms of some of the universality of it, I feel like story ought to be one of those things that is universal for human activity on stage. But And I pick up the same things you do, more so in the U.S. probably than anywhere else. Maybe, well, no, I think it's probably pretty tight here <laughs> that there is some some um, schools traditions theaters that are very anti-story you you don't want to have a story for some reason but where, where do you think that comes from I think a lot of it has to do with Keith Johnstone and uh, Keith Johnstone and uh, I've only taken a couple workshops with him so I've had limited exposure to him outside of like the the two workshops that he did in Chicago and then also reading, you know, his book, Impro. So, who, brought, who brought him in in Chicago, or did he just come on his own? Well, the first time, Dell brought him in. Okay. And the second time, Second City brought him in. Okay. What was, what was do you remember uh, each independently, how, yes, how that might have come about? Yes, they were separated by decades. Okay. Uh, you know, Dell felt alone in Chicago in a certain way, and he had heard about Keith and loved that there was another person who was saying improv is art. Improv is its own expression. Because, yeah. you know, Dell was always fighting with Bernie Sollins. It is an art form. No, it's only good for writing. It is an art form. It's only good for writing. Right. By the way, my joke is the winner of that argument between Dell and Bernie was yeah. Viola Spolin. Yeah. Because there is more education work being done improvisationally than for uh, theater either written or improvised. Yeah. I think we're coming more and more back to the foundation that uh, that she was setting than uh, we even understand. <laughs> uh, I heard that Dell said that uh, Dell said I, I remember when Dell said that um, he said he realized that the last six months of his life he was just teaching Viola's work. Mm-hmm. So that was it. But he, you know, felt alone and and wanted somebody like another artist to come be there and say this is art and so he brought in keith johnstone and they got along for about a day okay what was the friction that came up what i like to say is it was the same situation as vincent van gogh and gogon vincent van gogh was an artist by himself this madman crazy artist who was seeing things in a whole new way and he felt alone and lonely wanted someone like an artist to have to relate to and gogon came in because he wanted a free place to stay and then they got along for a little bit and then grew to hate each other. And if you look at what they have to say about each other's work, they both ripped each other's work apart. And from their perspective, they were right. As singular master artists, what they were seeing that they didn't like in the other one's work is true. But on the other hand, both Gauguin and Van Gogh were master artists. Mm-hmm. 
and their work was amazing. So Dell and Keith were very similar like that, that they were both master artists who had different visions and they had more separation in their visions than they had connection. And, and a lot of their vision for what they wanted or wanted to do or achieve was diametrically opposed. How would you describe those two visions? I have a sense of it, but you know, you were at that workshop. <laughs> well, you know, like uh, Keith Johnstone talks about, don't try to be smarter than your audience. Don't try to surprise them. Just give them what they want. Mm-hmm. And Dell's like, be your your treat the audience like they're artists and geniuses, and recognize you're an artist and genius yourself. And don't do the obvious thing. Mm-hmm. Like Dell be don't do the obvious thing. Keith would be do the obvious. Do the thing. obvious, right? Yeah, like that would be one very fast, simple way of saying how they were diametrically opposed to each other. How about, how about the vision, though? The vision that, that what, what would you say was Dell's vision and Keith's vision? Again, I would use like more uh, uh, artistic references. Like to me, Dell was like Picasso. He went through so many phases and stages hmm. and like Picasso did. And he was a genius and he was scary, kind of like Picasso was. Uh, whereas Keith, was very influenced by like wrestling and uh, English football, which is soccer and much more of the sporting aspect of it. And so, you know, if you don't have Keith Johnson, you never would have had comedy sports because Dick Chudnow uh, was doing theater sports and got tired of paying royalty, as the story goes, and stopped paying it and created comedy sports. So he stopped paying... Uh, Johnstone for theater sports and created comedy sports and then uh, theater sports got a little bit pushed to the side. I started with Dick and have yeah have the other side side of the story or at least parts of it anyways yeah. So Keith <laughs> liked the sort of populist aspects of it. And Dell did not. Dell wanted again was sort of uh, uh, he saw himself as an artist. I mean I would say since he grew up, grew up uh, and got a lot of his start uh, as a young adult in carnival world, working in carnivals, that he looked at everybody as you're either a carny or you're a square, you're a civilian. <laughs> I guess that's one way to categorize everybody simply and quickly. <laughs> yeah, like, and so I felt like they had very different visions because of that. And as such, a lot of Keith's work being story and narrative lend itself really well and very easily to genre work. Yeah. And so a lot of the people that have been trained through Keith are very adept at doing some amazing genre work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is there's different, a lot of, like in a lot of theater, there's the same words, but they have different meanings. Like the word vulnerability has different meanings, whether or not you're doing improvisation or scripted theater, or some of the choices of the words have different meanings, even based on what college you went to and what your dramatic training was. Yeah. So this, the use of the word of Keith Johnstone using the word story is a different story than, say, Paul Sills had with story theater. And that uh, the use of story that uh, Byrne and Joyce Piven use for Piven Theater Workshop, because they are the only place in the United States that teaches story theater. And for them, story is a different meaning of the use of the word story than the word is used for Johnstone. Mm-hmm. And uh, my trying to be bilingual of all of this and translate everything, sort of being like Joseph Campbell, exploring all the different uh, uh, religions and seeing what's common with them and being able to like go between them, 
I, th I tell people that it's not story that you want to shy away from, it's plot. Because with plot, everybody goes from being living, breathing, feeling improvisers into playwrights. And mm -hmm. they're uh, doing the play in their head and they're trying to figure out solutions for it. And that's all very plot driven. Whereas I think story is a valid and important part of improvisation. But I also believe that if you focus on character and relationship, a story will appear and it will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. As soon as you're focused on story, uh, you, you know, you got to remember story is different than plot. Story is beginning, middle, end. Plot is, but what's going to happen with the will? Yeah, well, there's also categorizations of story, which can help you with those plot points as well. I, I wonder how much of it is it, the plot aspect if you, if you have to write it in your head and you're performing with more than just yourself, you're never going to write the same plot. Right. But if you, if you know the themes... Yes. And the... You can weave around in them. You can go swimming in them. Right. And, and have the shared discovery together. But when right. you're looking at plot, you're like, okay, we're in a bank. There's a bank robbery going on. How are we going to end this? What's the end of the show? Where is this going to go? Your answer, my answer, the other two people in the group's answer. We have four different answers, and they're competing with each other. Right. Whereas if we know that there's a story here and the story is connected to the theme, whether or not we rob the bank or not, whether or not we get the money or not, whether or not we survive it or not, we know what we're swimming in and the theme of it. And then it allows the story to sort of be an outward presence that takes you somewhere. But you have to do work to be able to swim yes. in whatever that is. Absolutely. So, yeah, so if, if you're just jumping into the pool for the first time, you're going to drown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about that second time that Keith Johnstone came in based on the Second City's invitation? Yeah, Second City brought him in, and I was still teaching in Second City at the time. And, uh, and I'd learned a lot more. I mean, like when, when the first time Keith came, I'd only been doing improv for about two years. Hmm. And so there was, I knew some things, but there was a lot that I didn't know. Whereas by the time I saw Keith, I'd been doing improv for a long, long time. Uh, and so I already had opinions and feelings. I even had my own show that I call Storybox, which is very funny that I created a form that's called Storybox. And when I say don't focus on story, because uh, you're following <laughs> the plot, but here there is an element of the story. You focus, on, yeah, you focus on the theme of changing the character or the relationship, specifically changing the character. That's the yeah. element of Storybox that creates the story. So... Yeah. I was in the workshop and I probably fully agreed with half of what Keith said. Okay. Like half of what Keith said, I was like, yes, oh, that confirms, that affirms what I was saying. And yes, that's it. Oh, that's obvious. I, I already knew that before he came in. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, that shows that I was thinking in the right way. And then about half of what he said, I was like, no, fuck no. No, that's stupid. That's wrong. No, fuck that. That's it. No, fuck you. You know, so I, I had very strong reactions to pretty much everything Keith said and did, either very positively or very negatively. How many of our students do you think are, are that way with us? <laughs> it depends on how much improv they've had. I know, right? <laughs> were, there, were there things that you uh, were negative on 
that you ended up being persuaded about or no? No, no. It felt very much like an acid test, uh, not rather than a Warshaw test. It was very much everything that I was in agreement about, I was in agreement about beforehand, but it served as a confirmation or affirmation, or even a better way of how to illuminate that a little bit better. The stuff that I disagreed with, there was nothing that he said that could convince me that made me feel differently. Hmm. Um, you know, and actually my favorite, when it comes to Keith Johnstone's work, my favorite artist related to Keith Johnstone is Patty Stiles mm -hmm. from Australia. I think she communicates Keith's work better than Keith, both as a teacher and then, and as an artist, she is an amazing teacher and an amazing artist. And, uh, every time I've ever been in a workshop with her, I've been in workshops with her where we're both in the same workshop as improvisers. And I've been in, you know, uh, been able to watch her teach or direct or, and I've performed with her and she could probably convince me of just about anything. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, uh, even like she could probably, she, I would bet that she would be able to take some of the things that I was like, no, Keith is hundred percent wrong. Fuck that. He's wrong. She could probably go, but if you like that, she could probably get me to look at it a different way because she could communicate it in a certain way that I would understand it better and see the connections to it. Uh, uh, but also, you know, as amazing as she is, she and Joe Bill perform together a lot and, and they sort right. of have a summit of the Joe, you know, Del Close approach and the Keith Johnston approach. And so they've definitely influenced each other, which creates greater improv multilingualism. Yeah. And, and I feel like being multilingual is a really important capacity. I mean, artistic multilingualism. Right. So that, you know, if you're playing with a UCB person or a Groundling person, or a second city person, an IO person, comedy sports person, or if you're playing in another country and you're playing with a Johnstone person, or you're playing in another country with somebody that has their own thing, that you're able to be artistically multilingual enough to be able to jive with them and then be able to jam with them. Well, one of the episodes, I think it was the second episode for this season, uh, was with Patty. And one oh, of the great. things. Yeah, one of the things, it is a fantastic episode, a uh, little plug for <laughs> episode two with her, um, but one of the things that we spent a fair amount of time talking about, or at least I felt was an impactful part of that episode, was talking about establishing the goals for the show or the experience yep. and letting that drive the bus in yes. some ways. And I don't think a lot of improv teams or theaters or troops or even individuals have a good sensibility about what the goals are for their shows. Right. Or maybe even their own experience with improv. Yes. Do, do you do you have a certain goal for your experience as an improviser on an overall level, putting aside when you go to guest with so and so, they'll, you know, you'll try to, I'm sure, pick up on what their show goals are or norms and conventions uh and and in fact a lot of times when i guess i actually ask them yeah before we start warming up i ask them questions about their form and their goals and i've had some people go we've never talked about this before yeah or i've had a coach say ah oh, that's great because it made them think about it uh yeah. whereas to me that's one of the most natural things to think about if it's if it's a show that i'm in that i'm creating then I work to communicate what the show expectations are and what the goals are of that show. 
And those goals for different shows can be very different based on what that show is about. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of my answer. It's very similar to Patty's. You, yeah. you know, you have to know what your show is about and what you're trying to achieve and then hopefully be able to communicate that to then know what you're trying to do. Right. Not to rehash the episode, but the other <laughs> thing that... <laughs> The other thing that we talked about was actually a prior episode with somebody that uh, uh, is not an improviser, but a gentleman named uh, Ken Davis, uh, who's a um, he's a seventy-something-year-old um, speaker primarily and comedic speaker and things like that. And he talks about if you don't have a goal, then other goals will subconsciously present themselves, and you will drive towards those. And the absence of a shared goal, I think in some ways might make zoom improv that much harder to pull off than in-person improv. Do you think sure. so? Or? Yeah. Yeah. The shows that I've seen that I enjoy the most, uh, have an element of something specific to them. I mean, yeah. the nice, the nice thing about, uh, Jay's two person shows is the premise is it's me and another person Yeah, and we're going to get along and it's only 10 minutes. Right. So you're not That's stuck easy. With, yeah. It's bite size. <laughs> yes, right. It's like we're just going to have a sandwich together. Yeah. Whereas uh, the shows that, that I like creating or participating in have a real specific focus of purpose to them. Such as? What are some examples? Uh, like, for example, last night, uh, the show that I referenced, we, we, it's called Seen and Unseen. And uh, uh, the six of us who... Well, there were five of us when we were creating it originally, and then Jay came in for the second rehearsal. The six of us that were creating it uh, came up with the idea of, you know, to me, one of the most dominant images of 2020 mm -hmm. is someone with their hands up against the glass looking through the window, uh, either at an old folks' home or a hospital, mm -hmm. the separation. I know what you're about. Yep. Yes, it's such a, it's like a universal symbol right now for this year. Of, yeah. You know, to me, the images that are of this year are either of somebody standing outside looking through the window trying to see their loved one mm -hmm. or uprisings. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so for me, theatrically, because it's hard to do an uprising on mm -hmm. Zoom. To me, theatrically, that image of face pressed against the window, looking for your loved one with your hands against it, is sort of like a universal image for our society as a human species right mm -hmm. now. And it's universal because I've seen stuff all over the world that has those moments happening. And so we use that as a starting point. The audience mm -hmm. was gonna choose which one of the six of us, because we had a number, and then they gave us a name, and then that person went off camera for the entire show. They became the protagonist and we never see them, but okay. we hear them. And then everything we do when we're improvising, we're playing into the camera because the camera becomes that person. Yeah. And then the audience is also de facto that person. So while they're hearing the voice of the protagonist, they're looking at us talking to them. Are they typically in your format just looking at one screen, one uh, video? No, everyone's got their own screen, okay. so there's different things. No, no, I mean one at a time. Uh, we had a series of two-person scenes, and then we were able to get to like three-person scenes or group scenes, and even then we're all still looking. At the, at the very beginning, when 
five cameras came up. There were five of us with our face, hands pressed up against the glass going, I don't see her. Do you see her? I haven't seen her. She, I don't see her yet. She's not here. Ah, you know, and then we start finding out about who and what we are, what our relationship is to her, what Mm -hmm. our relationship is to each other. And then as we start uh, talking while waiting for her, trying to see her, we reminisce about things. And then we go back and do that scene that we were reminiscing. And then everyone else closes off their camera. And the only person who was in that scene who said, yeah, I remember the time we built that tree house. Then everyone would go away. And it's just that person on camera going, speaking to the protagonist about that tree house that, that they're creating. And then it's going back and forth. So over the course of the hour, we really get to know the characters, their relationships, how much they love the person that's missing. We don't say that they're missing because of COVID. They could be... They could be in a prison. They could be at a, you know, because they could break their leg. I just saw on Facebook somebody saying that her daughter broke her ankle and she couldn't go into the emergency room and be with her. Mm-hmm. So there is that larger separation that's happening. You know, in, in America, the, the separation we've done with children and families, you know, when we've taken kids away from their families and, and, and along the Mexican border. So that act of missing and being separated was sort of the starting point of the entire show. Mm-hmm. And by the end, we still don't ever see her. So one at a time, we have to say goodbye, even though she's not there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like an exercise in missing someone. Right. And an exercise of the love that we have for the people that we missed while being communicated through the visual of we're in a glass, we're pressed up against a glass. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, one of the conventions we did was every time we we're outside with our face pressed up against glass, everyone was wearing hats or scarves to show that we were outside. Mm-hmm. And then we took them off when we were in a scene. Yeah, I think you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about uh, keeping track of the fact that this is a visual first medium and props yes. <laughs> and things like that are are much more important. Uh, yes, that's I noted, the thing I... First, uh-huh. so, sorry for interrupting. Uh, uh-huh. I'm trying to yes, Andrew. That's the thing that I saw with the Adam and Eves. They were the mm-hmm. first people I saw playing with props. Not mm-hmm. that other people weren't. I just didn't see it until I sure. saw them do it. And, you know, the thing is, watching people who are just trying to do improv like they were at their home theater or their home club, drinking looks really stupid mm-hmm. on Zoom because it's a two-dimensional medium so your brain only sees what it sees. Three right. dimension, you see it and your brain fills in the empty space of the glass. Right. And you go, oh, there's a glass there. And that's part of what's invigorating for audiences. They're improvising with us by seeing the things that aren't there. But on camera, this just looks like I'm hitting myself in the face. Whereas right. on camera, right. me drinking out of this iced tea is so much more immediately real and representational of it. And the Adam and Eve's were the first people that I saw playing with all kinds of props and costumes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would bring things in. It's like, like you know, Nessie the, uh, that I got uh-huh. in Scotland after teaching out from a friend of mine. So they would bring in all kinds of stuff like that. And that's when I realized, oh, you can't really do pretend object work on Zoom. It doesn't look right. If you're, you know, in, you'd be writing like this on space and that would work, but it works much better to actually have a pen and paper and write mm-hmm. because that's something about two-dimensional space 
Yeah. That yeah. just doesn't, you know, that you have to, it works so much better with real props, real costumes, real changes than just what you would do in space. And it's also an opportunity for product placement. And we want to thank the, <laughs> the folks at Pure Leaf Ice Tea. <laughs> yeah, I'm making the big bucks from Pure Leaf Ice Tea, that's for sure. Well, one of the one of the things with online improv <clears throat> that I think is a challenge is the economics of it as a performance medium. We have had some success crafting shows for organizations. Um, Makes sense. Yep. That are bringing us in, and so they sort of establish the goals, and we figure out how to, um, you know, kind of dovetail with those. But in terms of just putting something out there to support a theater like the theaters in Chicago or in any city, almost anywhere else, I think everybody is pretty much having the same experience that the online ticket sales is i mean a fraction of what what and that's at best at best best. a fraction Mm -hmm. and i don't know if that is going to change and conversely i don't know if that's going to change until people can go back and see things live when it yeah i i uh i don't know why i feel like once people can see things live again then seeing something on zoom becomes a choice and might be more palatable right yeah. And also, you know, uh, what kind of tech stuff we're going to discover along the way. Because yeah. even Zoom was not expecting to become this platform for it. You know, and see right. the emerging platforms like AOC just did a get out the vote thing on Twitch playing a video game in front of half a million people live. And it's been seen by five million people since. Yeah. So there are new platforms coming up and new ways of engaging that are coming up. It remains to be seen whether or not the 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 product that comes from creates some sort of an economic stream, or whether or not it creates uh, a secondary stream where they'll then come see you do something live. Yeah. Uh, my friend in Scotland, she said that to, that uh, this weekend uh, they reopened the Birmingham Repertory Theatre in England, okay. uh, and it was like in a nine hundred thousand seat house, nine hundred seat house, and they sold. Uh, they kept it to 200 tickets. Yeah. And they sold out every performance this weekend. And she said that people came out of there crying because they miss theater so much. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that's the UK. We have a different relationship to theater than UK does. But people will always return to performing, both audiences and performers. That will The live experience will return. Mm-hmm. During uh, the Black Plague, Europe shut down and did no theater for five years. Boy, hmm. five years. But then, once the plague was over, that's when Shakespeare started up with uh, uh, what he was doing at, yeah. at the Globe. So people will return to live performing. It's just a question of when. Yeah. Uh, but until then, I don't really know how you get people to pay for this online mm-hmm. uh, because very few people do. The thing that has been at least buoying some people has been the classes. Yes. I don't know what the total consumption of classes is today versus three, four months ago. I think I think there were fewer people doing it, but there was certainly a lot of energy and excitement about doing something new at the beginning. I think that'll settle somewhere if it hasn't already. But 
Um, and you're doing some teaching online yes. as well. When you're teaching online, do you think you are teaching to the stage, to the screen, or something else? Uh, both. I try to be bilingual, artistically bilingual, by saying, now on stage, in 3D, I would want this or have you do this. Mm-hmm. But in Zoom, this is the best way to achieve that. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, so that then if they're learning something from me and can remember later on, whenever they get to perform again live on stage a year from now, they'll be able to hopefully have that somewhere in the back of their brain uh, about, oh yeah, this is what we do on stage versus what we do on Zoom. What have you most enjoyed teaching online or what has um, most seamlessly been a subject or topic that you can lean into online? Doing mono scenes. Okay. But I've, I've uh, also, with mono scenes, ended up translating it for Zoom and okay. removing sort of the three-dimensional aspect of it. Uh, also, I like teaching how to get people to be more present. And I'm glad to see that that works as well on Zoom as it does in real life. So I'm pleased mm-hmm. that that is happening. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a universal aspect of what improv is about? Is presence? Yes and no. Okay. What's the what's the no part? Let's start. I with think that. that there are some places. Uh, I, I do a lecture called Nine Ways Up the Mountain. Okay. Which yep. is I've uh, heard of this. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's called Nine Ways Up the Mountain, and it's the categorical and historical uh, comparison of the nine major improv, philosoph- improv philosophies of North America. Okay. And it goes from Viola Spolin to UCB. Okay. What well, can you can you share share the nine that you've identified? Uh, so Viola. Viola. Spolin is one. Yeah. Paul Sills. Okay. Del Close, uh-huh. Keith Johnstone, Gary Austin, Martin DeMott, Mick Napier, UCB, and a Organic Improvisation. And Organic? Just, yeah, Organic. Uh, it was uh, uh, created by Shira Piven and Todd Stashwick. Okay, okay. It sort of combines movement with improvisation. Okay. Like yeah. if, if Twyla Tharp and Viola Spolin had a baby, it would be Organic Improvisation. <laughs> Okay. All right. And I said Keith Johnson, right? Yeah. Yes, you did. Yeah. 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 I think that sounded like you got nine in there. Yes. Um, And presence, um, you're saying, is part of some and maybe not part of others. I would say it's like, I think presence ought to be there in everybody. But in some cases, you are being asked to put your focus somewhere else, like on something external, like a, a form. So you are more aware of the form than you are aware of your presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or you could put it on something so internal that you're not necessarily aware of the presence. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that like all improvisation, being, you know, what I say is being present. Being present is its own present. Mm-hmm. Being present allows you to be aware of the gifts you are giving and receiving. Yeah. And that to me comes from being open. But some people end up focusing on certain other things to such a degree that they're actually not aware of some of the other things that are happening Mm -hmm. because they're Mm -hmm. focusing on their one main specific philosophy or training that they've come from. And so 
they're missing or ignoring or can't even see some of the multitudes of other things that are happening around that because mm-hmm. they were looking for this one specific thing. When you started doing uh, the, the, the Herald, if it was called that at the oh, it was. beginning. It was called the Herald. I did The Herald that I learned is what's now referred to as the Organic Herald. Mm-hmm. And it was not what Dell later called the Training Wheels Herald. Because mm-hmm. the what is in the Truth and Comedy book is what Dell later referred to as the Training Wheels Herald. Mm-hmm. I came up under the Organic Herald, and that was what Dell was doing in Chicago. That came out of what he first did in San Francisco. And so the Organic Herald uh, yes. implies that the structure morphs to the show. Correct. So good assessment. How would you, how would you describe the structure of something that will morph in the show? Or in other words, in other words, what is the Organic Herald be, besides sort of maybe how I described it? Um, well, for one thing, you start with the suggestion and you lean into it. You don't lean mm-hmm. away from it. So everything is inspired by that original suggestion and has ties to it. Every scene, every act, action, every As game. Some, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and there is no, there is no structure to it. Mm-hmm. It is more like what I call a formless form. Mm-hmm. Personally, a lot of times improvisation, what I like most is formless forms. Mm-hmm. Because then me and the people I'm playing with, we find the form together in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to me, the difference between games and some forms is games, the structure is external, and forms, the structure is internal. How much of of the move to the more structured version is based on easier to teach or the amount of time that the students have? I'm saying yes to all of that. People can't yeah. see me nodding my head, but yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, the metaphor that I use is that the Herald that Dell was doing in San Francisco and what he was doing in Chicago was similar to the way we used to make cars in the beginning when cars were made handmade Mm -hmm. and more expensive and more sort of works of art because each one was its own unique thing. And then when Sharna and Dell created the Herald together that became later called the Training Wheels Herald, that became much more accessible Mm -hmm. and much more commercial. Mm-hmm. and much more containable and controllable to where instead of each car being ha- made by hand, it became factory work where all these cars could just keep being made and sent out. Right. You can teach somebody the basics of a Herald in three to six hours, mm-hmm. and they can get up and do something, which mm-hmm. is great because then they can do something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people have read that book and, and are able to do things without even seeing it. Mm-hmm. But it's the difference between, you know, making. Yeah, it's yeah, I already said the analogy, so I don't need to make an analogy yeah. off the analogy. But <laughs> it, it went from like cars that were handmade to cars that were uh, factory produced. And then everyone could have a car, but it wasn't the same as when you had cars that were like works of art. Since improv to many is art 
Why don't you think there is more of um, a desire for that kind of artisan experience, which would take time, not just, you know, uh, the length of a rehearsal or a performance, but kind of an apprenticeship approach, which is the kind of structure that I think you went through, even if it wasn't formalized that way, it would feel that way, right? I have often said that's how I felt like I learned, like I was an apprentice. And uh, uh, because I learned from everybody that I could and there was no structure to it. So it was not exactly right. It was not a formalized apprenticeship, but it felt like an apprenticeship because I could study with people for long periods of time and really get to know their point of view and their perspective and what they were trying to say. And so uh, and then it went from like apprentice to journeyman to craftsman to Mm -hmm. uh, when I started traveling around the world, people started calling me a master artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was. And so I've now sort of come to accept that or believe that. Uh, I also believe you cannot name yourself a master artist. Someone has to name that for you. Because if you call yourself that before anyone else does, you might not be. But if other people say it, then there's probably truth to it. So, yeah, that's how I kind of went through that experience. And that's whereas sometimes some of the training center approaches, the five levels and a different teacher each level, you get a taste of it, but you don't get that same deeper swimming into it to really get that person's, the teacher's perspective about how they work and what they work. But of course, you know, that's what I came up with. So of course, that's why I would probably prefer it because it's how I learned. But I also realized that that's not necessarily economically viable to do it that way. It was economically viable enough, at least for you to experience that and to some others. Clearly, there is an access to improv issue to think through but um i think the common mantra for um pursuing improv is take as many teachers as you can and have as many experiences as you can and on the one hand you can you can see why that's great right and and then you have an amalgam of things. I, I that's one of the reasons why I've enjoyed doing this podcast is you get to you know swim in all these different pools, and it informs and challenges and shapes you know the the work that you do. On the other hand, when Keith Johnstone comes to town, and you have strong feelings about you know this part and that part, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know, one was right or wrong, but you were, you were that deep and in the know of things that you, you could express those opinions in firm ways. And that potentially has a value as well. Right. And I'm still able to recognize that Keith is a master artist. Keith is a pioneer. I mean, I showed up for a reason because I recognize and respect, you know, uh, the work that he's done and created. I, you know, just don't agree with every single part of it, but that doesn't mean... Yes. Yeah. And and I'm and I'm not saying you didn't, but Oh my, no, no, my, I was just trying to say for anybody yeah. who hears it that like that that is also part of that growth that you can sit there and go, Wow, you know, I really like this guitarist and see how great they are. I might not have done everything they did, but I really can see into the work that they're doing. Uh right. you asked to go back to like why you why I think this is that not everybody takes that path. Yeah. Um and I think it's got everything to do with Saturday Night Live. You know, uh uh while Whose Line Is It Anyway popularized the form, 
And it's great mm-hmm. that it did because it made it so much easier to communicate people to what we do. <laughs> right. Uh, so many people have the goal of being on Saturday Night Live, and if not on Saturday Night Live, then a TV series or a web series. And those are all fine and valid and wonderful goals. They're, everyone who wants to have that, God bless them. But in other parts of the world, they don't know what Saturday Night Live is. Mm-hmm. They've never heard of Lauren Michaels. They, so doing improvisation is not why they do it. The, get, getting to be on their sketch or show on TV, they're not going to do that. Uh, they do it for its own art form and its own expression or because mm-hmm. they're theater people who also like improvising. Yeah. And because that route of this is a way of getting trained so that I can move to L.A. or New York and then move to L.A. and get seen and have a career in the film and TV industry. Whereas in Europe, you can make a living in theater. And yeah. in Europe, I got paid to improvise. Mm-hmm. And it's looked at as weird or uncommon if you're not, it looks weird like you're not paid to improvise. Like if you're going to perform, mm-hmm. you should get paid. And mm-hmm. that's such a different mindset in Europe than it is in America. And as such, because everyone has a, so many people have like a greater goal than to do theater, but to be able to be on television or the web, however it is they can achieve that now. That as such, I don't think there's as much interest in doing anything that isn't status quo. Yeah. What are the steps I need to take so that I can get to where I want to go? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I meet some cool people, yay, maybe we can make a podcast together. Mm-hmm. But my ultimate goal is to get to this other place. Hmm. As opposed to a lot of the rest of the world, this is the goal or they're already performing and making their living as performers, and this is also what they do. Mm-hmm. And so that makes a huge difference because in order to have a saleable commodity, improvs has been marketed into comedy. Mm-hmm. It went from is improv an art form to improv is an art form to improv is comedy. Mm-hmm. And, and the theater aspects of it, the marketing of it, have been pulled away to just focus on comedy. So it's almost like there's two forms of comedy in America, stand-up and improv. Yeah. And that's made the shift because then if that's the primary premise in the big cities of Chicago, New York, and L.A., that creates a lot of the template of the ocean of people's understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Again, the cities that I mentioned before, or you know, to some degree Boston as well, uh, those cities have scenes that are able to do more with it. Mm-hmm. And then most cities seem to have a comedy sports team and a long form team. And oftentimes they don't get along and yeah. they don't communicate. They're a little bit like the Hatfields and McCoys. Mm-hmm. And they're both trying to be entertaining, but through different routes. Mm-hmm. And so they feel a competition with each other when really to me from a marketing and standpoint and a venue standpoint, your, your competition is sports and movies, and Netflix. And staying home. Yeah. And doing yeah. nothing. Yeah. Whereas uh, getting anybody to see any theater, whether it be comedy, sports, or if you're in Columbus, Ohio, The Nest, or, or going and seeing Shakespeare, or going and seeing a new play, or dance. To me, anytime a human being goes into a venue to see live performance, we've sort of won. Mm-hmm. You know, if they go to see music, not as much of a win for us, but at least they're going into a venue. 
But to me, anything that's related to theater, uh, scripted or unscripted, getting audiences to go to it is ultimately a victory for all of us. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I don't see it as competitive. To me, the, the struggle is to develop audience. Well, and on the other side of this, having shared facilities and resources is hopefully something that people are going to think through more fully just for survival, if sure. nothing else. But Absolutely. it should lead to a better experience overall, yes. too. Yes. And, and in the scripted world, there are theater companies that share seasons or share venues or share rent mm -hmm. on it, and it seems to work. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas in improv, it seems to be the battle of the senseis. Mm -hmm. This is my training center. This is my sensei. And, and I'm with them. Mm -hmm. As opposed to... And again, even though I say being an apprentice, to me that sort of feels different than an apprenticeship. Right. Because with an apprenticeship, hopefully there's more dialogue versus sort of like a team identification with this is my training center, this is my sensei, this is my guru. No. And uh, I am thinking that it's entirely possible that after this Zoom stuff, we will see changes that will go more in that direction. Because as everybody plays together around the world, it's going to be more about those connections, those individual connections, than it's going to necessarily be about a training center's connection or a theater's connection. I hope so. I hope so. There's certainly different ways that we interact. And you have the in-person relationships where you're friends, acquaintances, or strangers. Then you have the online friends, acquaintances, and strangers. Right. Hopefully those two blend well together. But Zoom also it takes away uh, a lot of travel costs. That's true. And, it truly and, does. Yeah. So, well, I guess we will see. And also, you don't notice that somebody hasn't taken a bath in a while, like you can in real life, or like, oh, they've been drinking. <laughs> yeah, that's a person who likes some garlic. <laughs> Sometimes you can figure it out, but not always. Yeah. yeah. So to, I know you're about to wrap up. Uh, I would yeah. like to say that I may sound like I'm very down on training centers. Uh, I just think there's more than one way to learn. And I think a training center is a valid way to learn. But I also want people to gain things on top of it. There are a couple theaters that have really come to life during the Zoom age. The nursery is doing really well in London. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, the Hideout is doing really well in Austin, Texas. Like Again, they've sort of become Zoom stars by making room for a lot of things. So I expect that after COVID is over, you will see a lot of people going to the Hideout and a lot of people going to the nursery. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you already know, we're in a very different situation here in Chicago. Uh, I.O. is shut down. Second City is up for sale. Um, right. Some other smaller improv theaters have shut down. So what things are going to look like afterwards... Hopefully, we'll be able to get back to a, more of a, even more of a collaborative, cooperative place, not just artistically on stage, but also behind the stages. And I think those who are and interested in being collaborative are the most likely survivors in all of this. I think that's the hopeful part of it. Um, and there are other things to be hopeful about, but obviously a lot to get through. Yes. And it's going to be a while. And it will be a while. So you might as well take advantage of what's there so that when the stage is available, you don't have to dust off 
<laughs> or get rid of all the rust. You've got right, to right. Some rid of some of it. So, yeah. Um, well, Jonathan, I I I got to you know maybe half of what I had uh, <laughs> listed to chat with you about. Um, you've been very generous with your time, and uh, I'll make sure people can find ways to connect with you. Um, and, uh, can I do uh, a plug for my website? Absolutely. Hi, everybody. I have a website. It's called JonathanPittsImprov.com. It took me a while to figure out the name of it. <laughs> there you go. But it's, Jonathan, it's JonathanPittsImprov.com. Or if you prefer, uh, you can also go to GlobalImprovWalkabout.com. Both take you to the same place. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, if you want to have me back with uh, some other time, I'd be glad to talk to you about more stuff and get through the other half of your questions. <laughs> Well, I'd, I'd enjoy that. I'd enjoy that. Um, well, I enjoyed much. talking to you today. And yeah. uh, thank you. And I really appreciate your insights. Uh, and I really appreciate your perspective and your questions and what you observed. It was, it's impressive. Well, that's very kind. That's very kind. Well, hopefully we talk again real soon, Jonathan. Well, thank you. And anybody who spent this uh, 90 minutes listening or 60 minutes if it's edited, thanks for listening. <laughs> uh, stay safe and wear a mask. All right, and buy Pure Leaf Tea. (laughs) (laughs) Jonathan shared that his start in the global online improv community and experience was a bit delayed, but it has continued to be an extension of his desire to connect communities and cultures throughout the world with improv. Perhaps his experience will be an encouragement to you if you haven't been especially active online. But either way, there was a lot to think about after this conversation. It certainly was interesting to hear a bit about the workshops Keith Johnstone put on in Chicago at the invitation of Del Close in the Second City, but it was also interesting to consider the implications of the apprenticeship experience that Jonathan had that developed his own sensibilities about the craft. There are certainly pros and cons of being steep in primarily one school of thought or approach, but there can also be depth to that experience as well, and that doesn't take anything away from the validity or strength of other schools or approaches. Are there ways, though, to get more out of your interactions with a particular mentor or school of thought than what you're getting today? How might that impact you and your work? I've put up a few links and more information on Jonathan on the episode webpage at improvcomedyconnection.com. If you enjoyed this episode, would you please share it with a friend that you know that you think would benefit from listening in? That one-to-one sharing on social media or by text or email or otherwise is how we've been growing to date. And of course, your ratings and subscriptions are of great help too. It's been wonderful having you listen in on this episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. I hope you found it to be helpful and that you found the podcast to be useful. As we're coming to the end of this season, it's a good time to share an idea as to how this podcast could be even more impactful or what topics or guests would be great for a future episode. You can let me know that by sending an email to wit at improvcomedyconnection.com. I'm doing this to be of help to you as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy. My name again is Whit Schiller, and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee with Fishsticks Comedy. You can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media at Whit Schiller on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also go to witschiller.com for additional content and resources to help you in your comedy or communication journey. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection.